This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia, registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're doing okay and adapting to this new normal we find ourselves in. For me, yoga and mindfulness are more important now than ever. These wisdom traditions offer wonderful guidance about life and how to navigate it. One very important scripture, arguably the foundation of modern yoga, is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Last year, we caught up with Kelly Donato, who is a yoga teacher, studio owner, writer, and author of the book Living the Sutras. Now, we interviewed Kelly last year, and obviously a lot has changed since then. So I reached out to her and asked if she could give us an update on her life and how she's living through it. We'll play that now before we get into the conversation with Kelly Donato. Thank you so much for checking in in this post-coronavirus world. I'm doing okay, or as best as anyone I think can be doing in this kind of crazy, anxiety-filled time. There are definitely moments of fear and stress and anxiety, but thankfully there's also still moments of joy and happiness and little silver linings. So I value those even more than before. And hearing from people and connecting with people and touching base with folks and checking in is certainly one of those moments. I ended up closing Past Tense, my yoga studio in Washington, D.C. on March 13th. And I've spent the last few weeks totally focused on that, making sure that my team feels supported and safe. And a lot of them are full-time teachers. So that really means making sure that there's income coming in for them and, and that they are okay financially. And we, like so many studios, pivoted online. We were really lucky in some respects because we had been planning an on-demand membership for a few months. And so this whole crisis expedited that but we had a good library of videos to work with. And of course, we're also offering live stream classes as well. I think for me, one of the things that I've been doing that has really helped keep me grounded and somewhat sane through this whole process has been taking a few minutes of time for myself each day, which is really challenging. I have a five-year-old and a husband at home, and so... Any moment when we're awake, we're almost always together. So that is, you know, I think for people out there, that is not an insignificant thing. So if you can find a way to do that, just pat yourself on the back. I've started doing mine in the morning. And so I create a media moat. I don't look at my phone. I don't check news or email or anything until I've had at least 15, 20 minutes of reading time. And I've been drawn to yoga books and spiritual texts. And that's been a really nice way to start my day to make sure my head is in the right space, if at all possible. And I think that yoga philosophy and and being reminded of it and grounded in it is more important now than ever. I think when we have a moral compass, like we get from the yamas and the niyamas and the sutras, 
or when we have practices that take us into our body or into our breath or into our spirit that grounds us in such an important way right now. So I'm not just reading the sutras at all. I've been reading other things too. I've been reading a lot about the chakras and I've been reading some spiritual memoirs. And I just, for me right now, that 15, 20 minutes of starting the day like that has become really important and is helping keep me, like I said, grounded through this time. So I hope that this is helpful and I hope everyone out there is doing as well as they can be. And it'll be really interesting to see where we come out as a society, but also as a community and a yoga community on the other side. Kelly, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's great to get the chance to catch up with you. I was wondering if we could start with you just telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I grew up in New York, about an hour north of Manhattan. At the time when I grew up, it was relatively rural and it's boomed in the last little bit and is now pretty suburban actually. And I I grew up there and then went to college even further upstate New York and then decided I'd had just about enough of that weather and moved to Washington, D.C. So I've been here almost entirely since then. I did a stint in Switzerland and a few years in Madison, Wisconsin, but otherwise I have been in D.C. And how did you discover yoga? Yeah, I had a very on-again, off-again practice from a very early age, my parents were really ahead of their time and practiced yoga at the Y, at their gym, you know, even when I was in high school. So I had this very on again, off again practice for a long time. And then I was training for my first long distance run and realized I needed to do something to counterbalance that. And I started practicing a lot more consistently. And you know, I joke often that I came to the mat for looser hamstrings and I stayed on the mat for all of the other reasons people stay on the mat. But, you know, I came to it for the physical practice. Was there a little bit of the, uh, you know, when your parents do something, it seems a bit daggy, so you aren't that excited to try it. Was there a little bit of that going on since you grew up with yoga in the background? No, actually, surprisingly, because I tend, especially with my mom, to be somebody who just as ornery about things. So, so you wouldn't think so, but, um, <laughs> but I was, it was actually not, it, it always seemed like this very cool thing that they did because it, I think it was so different and so new at the time. I mean, this was, I don't want to admit how long ago this was over 20 years. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so what prompted you to become a writer? I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I, I don't know, really. I, I mean, I remember in first grade, I, I went to this small Catholic school, and we had this homework assignment to write a book, and I went home, and I created this children's book out of old, awful wallpaper that my parents had had in the nursery. And Sister Agnes saw it, she was really impressed, and said I should be a writer. And I don't know if that's when the idea stuck or what, but I just committed to it. And I actually had a part-time job in high school at 
our local newspaper. It was this small newspaper and I would go and report on the local town board planning meetings, which is dreadfully boring. Um, <laughs> and they would pay me, you know, t- <laughs> you know, 25 bucks a shot. But I knew that that's what I needed to do was to do these awful jobs and get some experience if I was going to really do it. And so then I went to university for writing for journalism and to several internships and was just very dedicated in that pursuit and working towards that goal. So yeah, I just always knew that's what I wanted to do. Oh, wow. Nice. And we both really enjoyed your book, Living with the Sutras. I I found it really approachable and fun to read. I also like that you managed to squeeze in a a Fight Club reference and a lot of other (laughs) pop culture references. Some translations and commentaries can go really in-depth and maybe even overcomplicate things a little bit. I, I think so anyway. Did you find it a challenge to break the sutras down or do you think at their heart each verse is really a very simple yet rich statement? So I think the answer to that is yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I think they're, they're really this simple, powerful statement. I think they're really hard to to get to that, right? To get to that nugget is really challenging. And I think part of that is just the language, right? And I think part of that might be intentional. I think of yoga as this very living practice, as this practice that can grow and expand. And I wonder if Patanjali wrote it the way it's written, which can come across as very esoteric and dense if that was intentional and if that creates some room to let the practice breathe over time. I I don't know. It's speculation. The way that Amy and I did it, Amy is my co-author and she gives these beautiful Dharma talks before her classes and Listening to those, that was the first time the Yoga Sutras really felt personal and modern to me. And so I wanted to take what she does very beautifully in class and make that available to more people. And I have the writing skills to be able to do that. And so we would sit and I would just have her talk me through the sutras and we would just drill down until, you know, we found a theme or something that kind of struck me. And then we would kind of run with that. So that would be the long-winded answer (laughs) to your question. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And it also, I think, echoes the structure of the book because if we're thinking about the sutras as being experiential learning rather than just something that someone can tell you, I love how you've made the book so interactive with each sutra. There's like an accompanying exercise to really give people a way into making it part of their lives and something that they can really live rather than something you can just read and be like, oh, yep, got it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think once you do get to the very simple heart of what the sutras are, that once you can understand that text, then the next thing is, okay, well, now I know it. So how do I actually apply that to my life? Like, what does that mean in this very personal, personal and tangible way? I think that that's really important. Otherwise, it just it, it could blur into feeling dogmatic otherwise. And I, I don't think the sutras are dogmatic at all. 
think they're actually, like I said, I think there's this beautiful room to breathe within them and feel it's, it, it feels it's a very intuitive text to me. And, and, and I don't mean intuitive as in, I'm, I'm probably not articulating this as well as I would like to, which is such a shame since I'm a writer. But I, I think that, <laughs> I think that this is a text that you really like feel you can live. And so I think we wanted to make sure people were actually doing that. And that's a big part of the exercises in the in the text. Beautiful. And this might be a cheesy question, but do you have a favorite sutra? I have a few, and I do not think that's a cheesy, cheesy question at all. Um, <laughs> I love the sutra on cultivating the opposite. And part of why I love it so much is that it's just immediately practical in everyday life. And so Patanjali is saying, you know, you can't erase negative thoughts. That's really just not how our brains work. And the only way to deal with negativity, negative thoughts, negative emotions is to replace them, to crowd them out with more positive ones. So in the book, we talk about the the very popular white bear example, right? Like if I tell you to not think about a white bear for the next minute, the only way you cannot think about the white bear is if you replace it and think about, you know, a pink elephant or something. And that's just how our brains work. So the way that I see this is really immediately practical off the mat is that when you're dealing with someone who might be challenging or a situation that might be challenging, instead of focusing on the piece that's hard, you know, the frustration or the negativity in the situation, you can find something more positive about it. So an example I often give is that my mom and I have a very, what I think is very typical mother-daughter relationship where sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes it's not. And in those moments when it's not, I remind myself and I tell myself that she is the reason I'm a writer. She taught me to read. She really instilled a love of books and a love of reading into me. And and that is, I think, a large part about why I became a writer. So every time she starts to drive me a little nutty, I just look at her and silently in my head, I say, I'm a writer because of my mom. I'm a writer because of my mom. And then... I can deal with whatever the more challenging piece of the situation is, right? I've kind of crowded out that negativity. So that's one of the reasons I love Cultivate the Opposite. I love that example as well, because it's not like a false positivity example. It's not like you're just telling yourself, everything's fine, everything's fine. But you've actually found something real in that situation that is a real positive. So I think that's a really great interpretation of that suture, because sometimes when I read that one, I'm like, oh, am I just pretending that everything's okay and like ignoring the real problems and not dealing with them? Right, right. And and so people ask me often about how difficult that can be with people who are super challenging in your lives. And so I always say like, start out with somebody who's just like a little bit challenging and then someone who's like maybe a little bit more challenging. And, you know, <laughs> it takes a lot of effort to sometimes find the thing, the positive thing. So yeah, I think just be patient with yourself. But I think it's, I love that it's immediately practical in every aspect of life, like in our home, in our workplace, just on the street, you know, there's, it's immediately actionable. Life is full of little challenges. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Speaking of challenges, um, did you have a particular sutra that you had like challenges or difficulty getting your head around while you were writing the book? 
Yes, I really struggle with karma. Karma is a, I get it now, but it, that was a tougher one for me to kind of wrap my brain around the idea of. So, and I think too, part of it is I had the very stereotypical, more modern interpretation where karma, the idea that karma is always bad. And that's not the case, right? Karma is just the consequence, the result of your actions, right? And they might be the result of actions in a previous life or a previous situation, but it could be good, good or bad, right? It's, it's just the result. So I, I think the way we talk about karma in this, in our, in our pop culture way is part, part of why I was kind of thrown by it and confused by it. I can imagine as well that one possibly would have been one of those sutras that you really had to work to make it not sound dogmatic and not just be like, if you yes. do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. How important do you think that social justice is in the world of yoga? I actually think it's really really important. And I know for a long time, I feel like there was this stereotype of yogis as like, oh, just live and let live. Like nothing bothers me, like super hippy dippy kind of stereotype. But I think if you read the sutras, they're not saying that you don't have to act. They're telling us how to act. They're giving us guidance for how to behave in the world. And I think just the the sutra um, and the concept of brahmacharya, that right there is tells us right there that we have to act. And I know that often when we talk about this sutra, we talk about celibacy or maybe moderation, right? But the second part of that sutra is the reason we have to conserve our energy is that we are called to use our power and our energy for the greater good. And that piece of it, that second piece of it that I think we sometimes miss when we're talking about brahmacharya is why I think yogis are called to act in this world and they're called to stand up to social injustice and we are called to act for the greater good. And I think the second piece of it is if you believe that we are all one and we are all connected and this thread of inner divinity weaves through all of us, then, then for sure that's an even greater calling for us to act with the greater good in mind. So, yeah, I, I absolutely think that yoga calls us to stand up to social injustice and, and calls us to act in the world. Hello, Ran here. It's a whole new world, it seems, and everyone is moving their offerings online. It can be overwhelming. What technology should I use? What equipment is best? How do I best tailor my teaching on the internet? Do I need a website? Joe and I are here to help. We're offering a mentoring and support package. We have expertise in running a small home-based studio, website development, producing online videos, live stream and Zoom classes, and a depth of knowledge that comes from speaking to leading minds of contemporary yoga culture through our two years of creating the Flow Artist Podcast. We're here to offer mentoring for your teaching, technical assistance and moral support. We were recently featured in an online panel discussion with Yoga Australia on the topic of thinking outside of the box. And we'd love to help you find a new perspective on how you run your yoga business. If you want to learn more, just go to gardenofyoga.com.au slash mentoring and I'll leave a link in our show notes. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get back to our conversation with Kelly 
Donato. I see that you've had some amazing guests on your podcast, Living It. In particular, I'm thinking about Susanna Batataki, I hope I pronounced that correctly, and Michelle Cassandra Williams. And I'm wondering, how do you feel that speaking to them and learning about their work has enlightened you on the issues they're talking about? Has it changed your thinking in any way or highlighted something that you might not have considered before? Yes, absolutely. I was actually really nervous going into the interview with Michelle Cassandra Johnson because I fully recognize that I am a white middle-class woman and I move through this world with a certain level of privilege. And I think sometimes just talking about race and certainly race in in this space that I consider very sacred and personal and, and like the yoga studio, I think that can really make people uncomfortable, but I don't think that we can improve and I don't think we can learn if we're not willing to be uncomfortable. And in the end, my nervousness was unfounded because Michelle was absolutely delightful and she she had so much wisdom to share. And I was really grateful for her conversation and her willingness to help teach me and to teach Amy and to help us do better. So that was really great. And then Susanna Barkataki was, I mean, also amazing. She, we talked a lot about cultural appropriation and in yoga, and I really appreciated her definition of it in that it's not just taking and profiting from another culture, but it's also then doing harm. And So for me, does that mean when we talk about cultural appropriation, does that mean that I can't study and I can't learn from this beautiful wisdom? And that's not what she's saying. She's talking about, well, how do I do that in a way that's respectful and that honors that culture and doesn't steal from that culture, essentially? And so she gave some really wonderful, tangible, practical tips in that episode about things that we can do. And... There are things that we're going to, you know, some things we were already doing at my studio, and then there are some that we're going to expand on or, or add to. And so that it was just really helpful. And, and again, I think these are not easy conversations to have. And I think that we absolutely have a responsibility to have them and to sit in that discomfort and, and to just keep learning and keep trying to do better because it's a beautiful practice. And I also believe, I mean, Patanjali says in the sutras that, that this is for all, you know, all people, all regardless of class and gender and all of these things. And so I do think it's a practice that's open to all people, but I also think that we have to be super respectful and aware of where it comes from and conscious that it's, I mean, I'm not of Desi lineage, so you know, being very aware of that and how we interact with that. So yeah, those were two really fascinating conversations. And I think we in the yoga community just need to keep having them and having more of them. Beautiful. And we're also planning to have Michelle Cassandra Johnson on our podcast, which makes me wonder how I managed to get her name wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because mistakes happen, no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, and isn't Michelle Williams, isn't she an actress? 
Quite possibly, yes. <laughs> Another famous Michelle. <laughs> so maybe, maybe you had that, and yeah, maybe you had that in the back of your head. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and I think the conversations that we've just been talking about so much tie back into the evergreen yogic concept of Svadhyaya and just looking at how we move through the world and looking at how we approach different things. And if there is something that comes up that is a little bit uncomfortable or maybe something we've been doing that we suddenly realize might be impacting others in a negative way rather than shying away from that discomfort and getting all defensive, like actually really exploring into it. Like it's so much a part of the yoga practice. I totally agree. I mean, how many teachers say about the physical practice, well, if there's an asana you struggle with, then like maybe there's something deeper to that and that's a pose you should kind of work with. Well, if, if that's true on the mat, then that's, I mean, I think doubly true off the mat. So yeah, and, and I, I think you're totally right. I think this concept of self-study and reflection and svadhyaya is, is incredibly important with these these conversations. And the other side of that, of the uncomfortable delving inwards, is the quality of joyfulness that you bring to your book. And I actually love the quote by uh, Rohit Mehta. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. But the effort must have a quality of cheerfulness about it. Yoga is not we'll go a, with it. <laughs> yoga is not a path of woe. It is indeed a way of joy. And even though you're asking people to ask like real questions and to go deep, there is this really lovely, joyful quality about it. And even you have an exercise where you ask people to look at their goals and to look at the way they're working towards achieving them and asking, like, is this effort bringing joy or does this feel like habit or obligation? Is this something that you've experienced in your own teaching and in your own life that you really wanted to articulate in the book? Absolutely. I I have a lot of joy in my practice. And yes, it started as a physical practice, but when I am on my mat, that is really my happiest time. And so even if I'm struggling in Shavasana or meditation, I still just have so much joy in my practice. And I think those are moments that we should cultivate. And if there's something that brings you joy in some way of practicing, whether it's asana or walking outside in nature, then I think those moments are ones we should work to tap into. And I think that that's ultimately what the broader yoga practice does, right? Not just the asana, but if we look at all eight limbs, the idea is to move more and more of our life into a state of samadhi. And we talk about all the different definitions and ways that word is defined, whether it's bliss or ecstasy. And the way I like to think about it is Michelle Gielen gave this beautiful definition of happiness in in our first season of the podcast. And she talks about, it's actually a definition from Aristotle. So it's the joy we feel while moving towards our purpose or working towards our purpose or, or living our dharma is how I take it. And so not every moment has to be joyful, but when we know our true selves and we're working towards living our dharma and living our purpose, then I think there's a lot of joy that comes with that. So yeah, joy is a big one for me. But again, I just have a lot of joy in my practice and I I want others to as well. I think it's especially important to cultivate that quality 
when you are working on yourself and asking those hard questions as well. And that example you gave is perfect. It's like, okay, even if what I'm doing now isn't necessarily fun, like that feeling of like, I'm really moving towards a deeper sense of happiness. Like I feel like this is really the right direction for me is like so powerful. Yes, absolutely. And I really appreciate how you've tried to make some of the philosophical concepts in the book relatable, but was there ever a concern that some of the original meaning and depth of meaning and significance could be lost? Like the chapter on samadhi, you equated it to the flow state that someone might experience surfing or skiing, and that kind of stood out to me since obviously samadhi is much more than a really good ski run. Right, And you do go on later in the book to give this some more depth and to flesh it out a bit more. So was the goal to kind of introduce it in a simple way and then go deeper later? Yes, absolutely. And actually, this was a push and pull that Amy had throughout because my experience with the sutras until the last few years had been very inaccessible. And so we wanted to make it accessible. And then how do you do that without dumbing down this really in-depth philosophy, right? And this, this text, the spirituality. And so Amy and I had an ongoing push and pull about, about that and how we could do that. So this is by no means where I think people should stop with the sutras. Our hope is that it's a good introduction for people who struggled with them to begin with, or it's a way for people who have studied them for a long time to think about them in a different, more modern way. But this was not this was absolutely not an academic translation of the sutras. There are a lot of those out there and they're beautifully done. And I, this is meant to be a compliment to that. So yes, absolutely. That was something we, we talked a lot about. Oh yeah. I definitely appreciate the delicate balance of bringing it into a context that people can relate to, but also opening up people's awareness to states that they may not have experienced before and not just putting it in the realm of, oh, that's for monks on a mountain. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, I also love how many different scientific studies and all kinds of things that you quote from, like in the sutra about chanting, you'll kind of mention how the mental health benefits of chanting and how it decreases cortisol levels. Um, I'm wondering, was it a deliberate strategy to appeal to skeptics? Or was that just fascinating information that you wanted to share? It was mostly fascinating information I wanted to share. I didn't think about appealing to skeptics, but when we were writing and working on this, I kept, there were so many times where I was like, oh my God, that is like when we were talking earlier about the white bear, you know, the white bear pink elephant example, that's this famous study or, oh, wow. Okay. Well that actually relates to this thing that I had read. And so, you know, I do in my writing world, I do a lot of health and fitness and wellness writing. And so a lot of these things were reminding me of, of things I had read in more recent studies. And so it blew my mind. I just kept thinking like, oh my God, these yogis were like so ahead of their time. And this is, they're like, science has proved what they just knew 2000 years ago. And so part of including that was validating the information that, and the teachings that we've had for thousands of years. Part of it was to make it more accessible. And part of it is just some of like the more pop culture references and things is like, again, I have a lot of joy in my in my practice and 
I don't think being a yogi means that you can't know what Fight Club is or Dr. Seuss, right? Like we're not (laughs) renunciants living on the top of a mountain. So how do you make it really truly relatable for people? And, And that's what we were aiming to do. And I think that this really flows on from that because there's a section in there, well, the sutra is spiritual one-pointedness is the best way to remove distractions and your exercise is an invitation to look at our social media use. And we tend to see distraction as being very much a problem of our modern age, but obviously it's an aspect of the human condition because it's in the sutras written thousands of years ago. Right. Did you find that any of those sutras were particularly easy to relate to because they just felt so true for today? I actually was surprised by how much I was able to relate to it. And I, I mean, all of them. There were very few that were challenging. I mean, as I mentioned, karma was a tough one for me. But other than that, like, it just made so much sense. And that was another reason we pulled in the studies and the pop culture references. Like, when you get to the heart of it, it just, to me, it just made so much common sense, all of it. And it was like, well, Obviously, of course, like when you put it that way, (laughs) that totally makes sense. Um, (laughs) So I just think, again, it just made so much sense to me. It feels so obvious now, almost in hindsight, you know. Yeah, I really actually loved, I'm I'm giving away too much of your book, that um, (laughs) the first couple of sutras where you... (laughs) like it was about perception and so you got people to write down these things that they perceived as being true about themselves and then the next exercise was to go to someone else and get them to write down the things that they perceived true and then examine it and I just thought that was such a simple and clever way of examining that concept of perception and the filters that we might see things through. Was it a challenge to come up with exercises like that or did they just naturally emerge? Some of them were really challenging to come up with. And some of them just were like immediately obvious what we wanted to ask people to do. And so actually what Amy and I did was we went through and wrote all of the commentary. We talked about it and then I would go through and write all the commentary and then Amy would edit it and add things. and, And then we would go through together again and we would go through all of the reflections and the exercises. And we had kept a running list of things as we were working. And like I said, like some of them, it was like, well, yes, we definitely want people to do this. And then other times we're like, huh, hmm, not really sure what we're going to ask people to do. And, And there were some exercises where our two different personalities came through. Like one's Amy was like, yeah, let's have them do this. And I was like, Ooh, really? I don't want to do that. (laughs) So that was, so there was some of that too. But I think that, I think that was one of the most important pieces of the book. I mean, that was the, the book was originally titled journaling the sutras. And that was the intent was to make it really personal and have these exercises. But I just, to all the listeners out there who are like, oh my God, that sounds like a lot of work. You do not need to do the exercises. And I actually encourage people to read through the book once before tackling them. But if you want to do that work, if you're somebody who wants to, who is a journaler or wants to do the exercises, I think it can be really helpful in terms of making it really, really personal really personal. I'm so glad you didn't call it journaling the sutras because I actually have a real aversion to journaling. (laughs) (laughs) And 
the exercises. See? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, the I, amount of times I've asked Joe to write down her dream, she's just not going to do it. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I think your exercises are so good. They actually didn't look like journaling to me. They just look like little creative exercises for reflection because they're all really short but potent. So yes. well done on making them seem appealing to someone who's like, no, journaling's not for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> good. I'm glad. <laughs> and so as you were writing the book, I assume that you were teaching regular yoga classes as well. Did you notice that the quality of your teaching changed? Was there a lot more opportunities for reflection flowing in or is this kind of already how you teach? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually was taking a break from teaching at the time. I was traveling so much for my other job that it just didn't feel fair to students or anyone else, honestly, to be teaching consistently. So I was subbing, but that was sort of it. I've always taught with some sort of Dharma talk or quote or something, but I have, since I am teaching again now, I have noticed that I'm bringing more of the sutras in and I actually spend almost as much time thinking about what I'm going to say from a philosophical or spiritual perspective as I spend coming up with my sequences. So yeah, it definitely has changed how I teach. I gave a class recently. It's it's almost Halloween here in the States. And I gave a whole talk about Abhinavesha and, and how I had kind of forgotten that Halloween is a spooky holiday and it's all about fear and death. And so we that was like a nice, easy way in and then we talked about it in a more real way. So yeah, it definitely has changed my teaching. And I guess the flow on from that is, has it changed the rest of your life? Probably. It's definitely made me more aware and I'm more consciously living my yoga practice in a broader way. So there are things that I believed and I was doing, I think, before and working on this and writing this has just sort of solidified and formalized why I was doing that, right? Made me much more aware of the reasons. I have a four and a half year old son. It a hundred percent impacts how I'm teaching him and raising him and some of the things that we do together. And, you know, we talk about we're right now I'm teaching him the yamas and the niyamas and kind of talking through that. So, so in that way, it's definitely, it's changed me as a parent for sure. But yeah, I, I think so. And and there are some practices that I realize are just non-negotiable in my life, like a gratitude practice. And, you know, there's nothing in the sutras that says you should have a gratitude practice at all. That's a very modern thing. But when you're focused on what you have in abundance and the abundance in your life, it's really hard to get caught up in the cycle of some of the other things that the sutras do talk about, like hoarding or clinging or feeling deprived. And so I think a gratitude practice is is one way, a really tangible way to implement some of the sutras in a, in a more modern context. So yes, uh, it definitely has changed my life and how I live in the world. And I've also um, been loving reading your other book, Gilded Lily, Lily Sensaya and the Striptease Mystique, which is obviously quite a different project. Um, I've got questions about that book as well. Yes. And to start with, how do you choose your projects? Absolutely. 
Yeah. So, you know, honestly, most of my projects have chosen me. I started working on Gilded Lily when I I left my job at USA Today and I was freelancing full time. And a part of that, I was working for a wonderful journalist, Tony Summers and Robin Swan. They're based in the UK and former BBC reporters. And they do biographies. They've written several, Marilyn Monroe, Richard Nixon. They actually wrote a a wonderful book on September 11th that was up for a, a Pulitzer. And I was their researcher on their biography of Frank Sinatra. And as part of that, Tony called me one day and he said, uh, can you find out about this woman, Lily St. Cyr, and if she had a relationship with Frank Sinatra, what it was? And so in diving into researching that, I was like, oh my God, who is this woman? She's totally fascinating. And I just became completely obsessed in all honesty. I couldn't understand how we didn't know who she was in this culture. And like the feminist in me was like, wait a minute, we know all about the men from burlesque, but we don't know about most of the women. And how is that possible? And Lily ended up really, she influenced, she greatly influenced Marilyn Monroe and Madonna and Bette Midler and Dita Von Teese. And she just seemed so influential and yet, especially at the time when I was working on it, nobody knew who she was. So I just, the writer in me channeled that obsession into the book. And then I've actually written a handful of other chapters or ghostwritten books. And again, those projects have all chosen me. And that's how Living the Sutras felt too, is that this idea kind of popped into my head and and it did so in this beautiful way right after I had met Amy and we'd become friends. And it just felt like everything had lined up perfectly for that to come together. So yeah, I feel like my projects have mostly chosen me or, or at least I haven't really felt like I've had any other choice but to sit down and and write this. Yeah, the book about Lily, I had this, yeah, I had the same response as you. Well, you had written it. It was like, how have I never heard about this person before? Like, she's so fascinating and such a standout figure in that time that, yeah. So thank you for writing that book. It was great. Oh, thank (laughs) you. That, yeah, that means so much. Something I really noticed in there as well is it was meticulously researched because there was a lot of footnotes for each of the chapters. So it's weird because they're like obviously there was information out there about her, but just not in maybe an easily digestible form or something like that. I just think that the information was kind of buried in history, right? And part of that was that Lily was a recluse and that towards the end of her life. And so she just kind of faded from memory, but the information was there. So yeah, I don't know. Mm, Because she'd written her own books. (laughs) Yes. She wrote one in French, which I had translated. And then another one, which I mean, she later admitted was ghostwritten. And there was a lot of untruths in that. I don't want to call them lies, but or exaggerations. And, you know, she was telling people at the time what they wanted to hear versus what I think was actually true. So you know, everything that made it into the book, I verified with at least three sources. So even if, even if it wasn't sourced. So if I couldn't verify something she herself had written with at least two other sources, I didn't consider it totally true. And some, sometimes people that I interviewed told me, oh my gosh, no, that's so not true. That never happened. And then I would try and prove that it did or didn't. So, yeah. And I guess that's just the nature of being a larger than life character on stage that flows through into all of her publicity and everything Mm -hmm. else. 
Uh, my next question is like, obviously, that was a very research driven project and researching someone in the past, whereas your sutras project is bringing something up from history, but in a way that someone is going to interact with and engage with today. And I can just hear from talking to you how much you love the research aspect. Was there a little bit of a shift in the way that you wrote this book to make it more interactive rather than informational, informative? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. They're so different, right? I mean, Lily is a is a factual biography and living the sutras is more, I mean, it's our commentary, it's our interpretation of it. So that's a little bit more fluid, right? I don't have to fact check things. There'd be no way to fact check what Patanjali was saying because we don't even know who Patanjali was. So, or if it was a one person or a group of people, we, we just don't even know. So yeah, that, that was very different. But I think ultimately as a writer, my job is to translate information and make it accessible to people in a way that's useful or entertaining or both. And I think both projects did that. And I'm a storyteller. And so with Gilded Lily, I was telling her story. And with Living the Sutras, I'm telling in part Amy's story. I mean, she she's so much more versed in the sutras than than I am or was. I think working with her on this feels like I got my PhD in them, so I definitely <laughs> knew them better. But it's also telling, in some respect, it's telling the story of the yoga system, right? It's it's one way of looking at it. So I think, you know, I think that's what connects both projects. And then, you know, I always I write about such different things. I think sometimes it can seem disparate. Like I do a lot of travel writing. I write about women's issues. I write about health and fitness and yoga and sometimes business. I wrote about green roofs recently. So environmental and real estate related. And the way that it makes sense in my brain is that it's all about exploration, right? Whether we're exploring the greater world around us or we're exploring our internal world. So I think that's the other thread that connects both, both of these projects too, right? I mean, I was getting to explore this woman's life and in Gilded Lily and with Living the Sutras, I'm getting to explore this really beautiful spiritual practice. Beautiful. And I'm just wondering, have you got any plans to write any more books in the yoga space? Yes, actually. Amy and I are working on a card deck that is complementary to Living the Sutras. So I don't know when that's coming out, but it is in the works. And I actually wrote my first children's book when I was on vacation, which was kind of a funny thing to do on vacation. <laughs> um, <and> it, has <laughs> a, <laughs> it has a yoga theme. So I need to, it's not overtly yogic, but I think yogis will recognize the theme of it. And so there's that. And then I have, I actually have another idea that is also yoga related, but I also love biography writing. So I think that that will be something I'll come back to as well. I, I really like exploring the lives that we live and telling people's stories. So that's definitely something I'll revisit in my writing too. Beautiful. 
Well, I guess we've got one question left, and this is the one we save for last, but if you could distill everything that you've learned in your life and through yoga and everything that you teach down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? Wow. I mean, that's yeah, easy question. The day we were trying to describe, <laughs> yeah, easier than a, the day we were trying to describe God and Ishvara <laughs> You know, the sutra that I think is very overlooked is the very first one, which says, depending on the interpretation, now we begin or now we begin yoga. And I think the most important word in that is 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 now, and this is a practice and. The beautiful thing about it is that every single moment we have an opportunity to start all over again, right? Like now, right now, I just need to be present in this moment, right, right now. And that, I think if the more we can live in the now, right? I mean, we can't do anything about the past other than learn from it. And the future hasn't happened yet. And so the more we can be fully present in the now and remember that, it's a practice and it's an ongoing practice, an ongoing effort. I think the more successful we'll be in the practice. That's a great lesson. Thank you so much for sharing it. And thank you for your wonderful books as well. I've really enjoyed reading them. So, and I'm sure future yoga projects are going to be equally enticing. So great to talk to you this morning, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. And that was our conversation with Kelly Donato. I hope you got a lot out of it and I hope that your practice is helping you get through these challenging times. Our next episode is a conversation with Rhea Tirazona. Rhea is a psychologist, a body positive and accessible yoga teacher and studio manager based in Manila in the Philippines. Joe and I were recently part of an accessible yoga community check-in with Rhea And in that conversation, I was made well aware of the privilege we have here in Australia. So I really wanted to speak with her and learn more about life in the Philippines as a yoga teacher. Look out for that episode in a fortnight. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga and mindfulness from India and beyond, as well as honouring the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs> <laughs>